What do you do when you find yourself wading through the waters of unhelpful feelings? And then, how do you find a way out of being stuck? On this episode, how to engage with others and perhaps even a therapist who can offer us wise compassion. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 438. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. And we do spend a lot of time focused on conversations in uh, this show. And one of the conversations that's so important for each of us to have is sometimes a conversation about where we are emotionally and mentally. We are so tuned, so many of us, and we have a heart for leading others and for developing others and seeing others thrive. And sometimes we miss the opportunity to do that well for ourselves. Today's guest is going to challenge us and also to really provide the perspective I know to help us to do this even better for ourselves. I'm thrilled to welcome to the show Lori Gottlieb. She is a psychotherapist and New York Times bestselling author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, which is currently being made into a TV series. In addition to her clinical practice, she writes for the Atlantic's weekly Dear Therapist advice column and contributes regularly to the New York Times and many other publications. She is also a TED speaker, a member of the Advisory Council for Bring Change to Mind, and an advisor to the Aspen Institute. She has written hundreds of articles related to psychology and culture, many of which have become viral sensations, and she's a sought-after expert in media and has appeared on the Today Show, Good Morning America, and NPR's fresh air. Lori, I'm so glad to welcome you to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. We have this tendency as people, and I'll throw myself in this category too, um, at least here in North American culture, and maybe you can help if uh, this is different other places, but when, when, we have a ch- when we have something physically wrong with us, we get to the doctor, or if we have a toothache, we get to the dentist. And yet, when we're dealing with the emotions that are not serving us well. Uh, Sometimes we don't take the action we should, do we? We don't. We do look at our physical health very differently from our emotional health. I think that whenever something feels off with our bodies, say you're having, you know, chest pain, you'll go to the cardiologist before you have a massive heart attack. But if something feels off emotionally, so often we say, oh, that's okay. I'll just power through. I'll just, you know, kind of stiff upper lip because, you know, I have a roof over my head and food on the table. So how bad can it actually be? And then people don't end up getting help until they're experiencing the equivalent of an emotional heart attack. And why should people suffer during that period? Why not go get help like you would preventatively if something were wrong with your body? And I I love that you use the word preventatively because I think that there are times in our lives that we do think proactively about going to see, or maybe not even proactively, have seen a therapist, like when there's been a major transition, when there's been a loss, especially. And yet we don't necessarily think about that in the everyday cadence of life when something just isn't quite working well. And like you said, then it comes to a point where eventually it becomes an emotional crisis for us. 
That's right. And it used to be that way in, in medicine too, where you never went to a doctor unless you were sick. And now so many of us know that keeping our bodies healthy is important in so many ways. It's important in terms of our, you know, the way we perform every day, the way we can navigate through life every day, we have to be healthy. And so we take preventative measures with our bodies, but we haven't quite gotten there with our emotional lives. You mentioned in your work that there's the tendency to, for people to show up in a therapist's office to have the perspective of, well, it's uh, hell is other people, <laughs> right? Like in this <laughs> world I'm dealing with around me. And you really challenge all of us to look at the reality that sometimes the hell is us, isn't it? That's right. I think that sometimes people think that they're going to go to therapy and they're going to talk about, you know, all of the situational things going on in their lives that are creating the problems. And part of what you do in therapy is you have to look at your own role in the situation. And that doesn't mean that these other things aren't happening. They are, but what is your response to what's happening? How are you exacerbating the situation with what you're doing? And sometimes, you know, we all have blind spots. And I think that a lot of what I do as a therapist is I hold up a mirror to people to help them to see something about themselves that they wouldn't ordinarily see. I want them to see the reflections in a different way so that they can make changes. You can't change what other people are doing, but you can influence what they're doing by changing your own behavior. You teach about idiot compassion and wise compassion. Tell me about the distinction between them. Idiot compassion is what our friends tend to do. We we go along with what people say. So someone says, oh, it's so unfair that my colleague got that promotion or it's, you know, that that guy's a jerk for breaking up with me. And what the friend doesn't say is, but that's happened the last several times. And maybe that's because you don't really put in the work or maybe that's because of the way you are in meetings or maybe it's because, you know, in the boyfriend situation, you go through his drawers, you know, whatever it is that we know it's kind of like if a fight breaks out in every bar you're going to, maybe it's you. Idiot compassion is, yeah, that's terrible. That's so unfair. Wise compassion is saying, yeah, that's really hard. And let's look at why this keeps happening or let's look at why this did happen. And maybe is there something that you can do differently so that it goes differently the next time? I'm not quite sure how to ask this question. So I'm going to probably stumble through it just thinking about what you just said is we all get a dose of idiot compassion in our lives because we have friends and family members and partners who, at least in our listening community, many people who are supportive of us. I mean, we're going to get it. <laughs> is it bad that we get idiot compassion? Is it one of those we want to have both? And I guess the second part of that question is, should we as friends, spouses, colleagues, try to do a better job at providing wise compassion? versus the idiot compassion that shows up in so many casual conversations? Well, I think there's a difference between a casual conversation and a more intimate conversation with somebody that you really trust. So if you have a friend that you really trust and you bring the situation to that friend, you hope that they're going to be honest with you, again, in a compassionate way. That's why it's called wise compassion. Let's not lose the compassion part of that phrase. So I think if you bring your situations to people who are always agreeing with you, you're never going to grow or change or learn. And so I think it has to do with timing and dosage in terms of how you deliver that wise compassion. So if somebody is 
the situation just happened and they're very upset. In that moment, you're probably not going to say, and what was your role in this situation? You know, you're going to listen to them and hear what their experience is of that situation. And in listening to them, you may get some clues about why the situation went the way it did that you can hold for a different conversation with them when they're not in the acute phase of that pain. Maybe a week later or a few weeks later or a month later, there's a way to talk to them about some thoughts that you have. And you might ask them, do you want to hear something I'm thinking about since we had that conversation last month? Here are some things I'm thinking about. I don't know if they're useful to you or not, but are you interested in in hearing my perspective on this? You know, I think there's a way to deliver it that has to do with timing. And when I say dosage, I mean, how much are you going to say in one conversation? Maybe you, you know, as therapists, we, we plant seeds. We kind of throw something out there. We float it out there and we see what the response is. And if the person is receptive, we may add more to it. If they're not receptive, we may just let that marinate for a little while. We're going to wait and see if something blossoms later. I like to say that I think most big transformations come about from the the tiny, almost imperceptible steps that we take along the way. And sometimes if you float things out there, they're going in, even if the person isn't ready to see it yet. They're they're still in there somewhere. What a gift to have someone in our lives who's able to do that for us. And I know that sometimes we don't have that person either. And and I'm guessing that that is the place then where a therapist can be really helpful to be that person to, to really dive in on wise compassion, yes? I think so, because I think that when it's somebody that we're close to, sometimes we feel shame when they point out something that we may be doing. We feel like, oh, they see this very vulnerable part of me right now, or they see this part of me that I'm not proud of. And then they feel a lot of shame around it. And it's hard for them sometimes to hear it from someone. But I also think that it's important to remember that when somebody is sharing this with you, it comes from a place of respect, that they respect you enough to tell you this. They respect you enough to feel like you're going to be able to use this information well. And so, you know, sometimes it's hard to do in those situations outside of therapy And a person will hear it better with a therapist. But I think that people who are close to you and who you trust and where there's mutual respect, that you can also get it in that situation as well. I heard you say where you appeared somewhere else that therapists have the worst business model ever in that they're not aiming to keep you in the therapist's room for your entire life. And and in fact, the aim is the opposite. And I think that is a Fear. I think I can think back to a situation I had with a therapist years ago where I, f- I felt a bit of that fear. And I guess I'm wondering, like, when you have come to a place as a person where you're thinking of, like, gosh, it would really be helpful to talk this through and have someone who can guide me down this path, what should we be watching for and expecting and entering into a, a healthy relationship with a therapist? There are so many misconceptions about what therapy is and and maybe should talk to someone. I really wanted to bring people into the therapy room to show them firsthand what it actually is. So one big misconception is that you're going to go into therapy, you're going to talk about your childhood ad nauseum, and you're never going to leave. And I think that that's sort of the the trope of therapy in our culture. And in reality, we deal a lot with the present you know, we may talk about how your past informs what you do now, but it's not about staying in the past. It's about the present and then moving forward. How can you navigate your life more smoothly? 
How can you have a better relationship both to yourself and with other people? So there's that part of it. And I think in terms of how long you're there, you know, it really depends on what you want to get out with it and what your goals are. And it might sound kind of counterintuitive to a lot of people to hear about goals and therapy, but we're very goal oriented. It's not just like you come in and you download the problem of the week and then you leave. It's about being both vulnerable and accountable in the room. So what are your goals? What are you here for? And we check in and say, you know, are we meeting these goals? And when you leave the therapy room, when you come back the next week, we want to know not just what did you learn the last week, but how did you change out in the world? How did you put it into action? So, you know, we like to say that insight is the booby prize of therapy, that if all you're doing is coming and you understand, now I understand why I keep getting into arguments with my partner. And then you go out into the world and you come back the next week and say, oh, I understand it perfectly, but you didn't do anything differently in that moment. Well, the insight is useless. You have to understand it and then also change something about the way you're interacting so that you're using that insight. And and you said two words a moment ago that really came up for me in looking at your work of the willingness both to be vulnerable and then also to be accountable of doing something with what you have discovered through that process. I'm wondering if maybe you could unpack both of those for us. I mean, thinking about really being willing to go down this journey where you are getting more insight and you come to a healthier place. What does that look like to to show up and to be vulnerable? I think a great example of that is there's somebody I write about in the book. So in the book, I'm following four very different patients through their own struggles. And then there's a fifth patient in the book. And that fifth patient is me as, as I, as a therapist, go into therapy when something happens in my own life. And one of the people I follow is this guy I call John in the book. And he's a very high powered person who works in the entertainment business. And he gradually starts to gain some insight, but it takes him a while, you know, in terms of, oh, he has a role in what's going on with his marriage, right? He has a role in why he can't sleep and why he thinks that all of the people who work for him are idiots, to use his term, you know, and they're not, and they're actually helping him to be quite successful. And so I think he he has the insight, but it takes him a while to actually start to change these very ingrained behaviors that he has that keep people at a distance. And once he realizes that he can get close to people, that he can let people see him, and that actually helps him have better relationships, and it also helps him professionally in terms of how he navigates that world, he is being vulnerable and he never thought he could show vulnerability. Part of it was being, you know, these sort of gender stereotypes where he felt like he couldn't really be vulnerable in that way. And part of it was also just his own makeup in terms of, you know, what he came to therapy with and what his past was. So I think that once he realizes that vulnerability is a strength, that he could actually use that in in all parts of his life. And I want to say one more thing about the gender difference, which is that I think a lot of times what I see in therapy is that men will come to therapy and they'll say, you know, I've never told anybody this before. And then what they say feels so mild to me. I feel like, wow, they don't have anybody that they could talk to about this thing that doesn't feel all that personal to me. And then, you know, women will come in and they'll say, you know, I've never told anyone this before, except for my mother, 
or my sister or my best friend, right? So they've told like maybe one to three people this thing that feels very personal to them and, and very vulnerable to them. And I think we really need to start changing those conversations about, you know, what we're allowed to say depending on our gender, because men have very similar questions and anxieties about life, you know, whether it's what is it like to be a parent or what is it like to be successful or what is it like to be loved? What is it like to love? You know, we all have very similar questions and I think we need to allow people to talk about them and and not judge them based on, you know, these these stereotypes that that have been around for so long. I so appreciate you bringing this in because I I know in our audience a lot of folks have heard the word vulnerability and a lot of us have read the work of Brené Brown, and you know we're just we just we want to really embrace that, and yet it is a journey for all of us to do that. And when you work with patients and you see people who not necessarily are, have an easier time with that, because I don't think it's I don't think it's it, it's easy for any of us, but the people who move and they move into vulnerability and they come to the place like John does in the book, what allows them to do that? Often, what happens is people realize that keeping that wall up around vulnerability doesn't serve them well. And sometimes it takes a really long time to see that that's actually the issue. They, what they do is they, they feel like they have to do the opposite, that they have to be invulnerable. And they try harder and harder and harder to not show people the truth of who they really are until they start to realize that everything starts breaking down. And I think that's when they say, okay, I'm ready to be open to the concept. I'm ready to, to think about it theoretically. And it still takes a while before they're able to actually live what they're saying. And once they do, so much opens up for them. And I think that that's when they start realizing, oh, wow, I can't believe it took me this long to see that. The second word you said a bit ago was accountability. And I'm, I'm really conscious also of what you said of insight is the booby prize of therapy, right? It's not especially useful practically if you get all this insight, but then you don't do anything differently with it. When the people who do really find and embrace accountability, and maybe even embrace isn't the right word, but who get there, <laughs> what's different about them? What do they do that it doesn't work for others? I don't think you can be accountable if you aren't vulnerable. You have to be able to say, I made a mistake. You have to be able to say, I didn't see that. You have to be able to say, I was wrong. Mm. You have to be able to say, I'm sorry and mean it and not the apology because you think it will appease the other person, but because you truly are sorry. That's true vulnerability. That's saying, I'm going to let you see me because we're both going to grow from this situation. We're both going to grow from this place of authenticity. And people can tell when you're being real and when you're not being real. A lot of people think that they can fake it really well and for maybe a certain amount of time they can, but ultimately they're going to plateau. They're never going to get to a different level. And then they come in and they say, I'm feeling stuck. They come in and they say, I don't know what it is, but I feel like something's missing. Um, They start to feel empty. They start to feel like they used to be really engaged and now they're not really engaged anymore. And those are all signs that maybe you're not opening yourself up to this other part of life that is so vital for you to live a full life, whatever that means to you. Yeah. And I, I'm conscious of 
the point you make in your work too, is that people often keep secrets from their therapists. And I mean, in one level, that seems sort of odd, right? I mean, it, like here you've, you're paying this person and have hired them to be a sounding board and to help you to engage in the things you wouldn't tell anyone else. And yet a, a lot of us keep secrets and, and keep secrets from ourselves too, don't we? We do. You know, I think that when people first come to therapy, there's almost this performative aspect to it. And I don't mean that it's they're consciously doing it, but it's human nature to want the therapist to like you, to respect you, to think well of you. Mm -hmm. And so I think that people feel like if I really tell this thing that I really need to be talking about, my therapist will look at me differently. My therapist will lose respect for me. And it's quite the opposite. If you show me the truth of who you are, I'm going to feel a lot more connected to you. I'm going to feel a lot more engaged in the work with you. I'm going to have a lot more respect for you. So I think that people keep secrets for that reason, but eventually what they come to discover is they're not moving in therapy. They're not growing. They're not changing. And once they start talking about what they really need to be talking about, all of a sudden the relationship with the therapist deepens, but also the work that they're doing grows exponentially. They, they move at a much quicker pace. So, you know, there's that part of it. And I think we keep secrets from ourselves for the same reason is that we're so afraid of recognizing that we're human. We lack a lot of compassion for ourselves. I talk a lot in the book about how unkind we can be to ourselves. And I, I had a patient write down everything that she said to herself over the course of a few days and bring that back to me the next week in session. And she came back and she said, I, I can't read this out loud to you. I am such a bully to myself. And then she, she did read it out loud. And she said, you know, if I said this to any of my friends, I wouldn't have any friends. And most of what we say to ourselves is so hypercritical. It's, it's very black or white. It's like, you're good, you're bad, you're worthless, you're worthy. You know, there's no gray, there's no in between. And so I think that we need to kind of change the script. We need to change the voice in our heads because it's not so black or white. It's not so, you know, you're an idiot or you're brilliant. You know, yeah. it's, there, there's a lot of gray. And I think that the way we talk to our friends is much more accurate than, you know, the way we view our own vulnerabilities. I really appreciate what you said about just the relationship you build with someone when they are able to, to do that. And it, it's actually, you have more, more respect as someone is able to open up and to really dive in there. And I was thinking about can't remember if you wrote this or if I saw you speak on this. A lot of times people have that desire or they come into a therapist and kind of the leading thought or what they'll say is, I, you know, I, I have that emptiness or I, I just want to stop feeling. I don't want to have these anger feelings that I have or whatever the, the presenting feeling is. And, and you've made the point that you can't really mute one feeling without muting everything else. And that like <laughs> human nature just doesn't work that way. And I, I think we, a lot of us get that, but I'm wondering, I'm wondering if you could Share a little bit about your thinking on that. Yeah. So when people come in, they come in with the presenting problem. And I like to say that I'm listening for the music under the lyrics. So they're talking about the thing that happened that got them in there. But I'm listening to what is the underlying pattern or struggle that sometimes they don't really want to talk about. And I think what they really want when they come in is they're saying, you know, I'm feeling anxious or I'm feeling depressed and I don't want to feel that <laughs> I, I'm feeling pain. I'm feeling lost. There's this loss that happened and I'm feeling all this pain. Please take away my pain. Yeah. And 
what they come to discover in therapy is that if you get rid of one and you know one sort of group of feelings you're going to get rid of all of them you can't just like mute you know the this this feeling or that feeling you can't choose your feelings a la carte that you're going to feel the entire range of feelings and feelings are like a weather system they blow in they blow out it's cloudy it's rainy it's sunny it's windy whatever it is it's calm that's what it feels like to be alive and if you don't feel you're pretty much dead right the, the the experience of being human is that we feel a lot of different things and not only that but our feelings are important they're like a compass they tell us what direction to go in so if you're angry about something what is that about what needs to change in your life if you're anxious about something what's causing that anxiety what is it telling you that needs to go differently in your life and i think that you know even something like envy we tend to judge our feelings or categorize them like some feelings are good and some feelings are bad but all feelings just are so some people will say oh i don't want to feel envy that's a that's a bad feeling but i say follow your envy it tells you what you want so if you're feeling envy because somebody got something you wanted that's great because it says i want that and then instead of just sitting there and like googling them and saying look at all these things and i can you know take an envy an envy bath right now you can say how can i get what i want in my life what steps can i take to get what i want you can use your envy in a positive way to say this is a sign that i want something like this and now i need to take some steps to get it and if i follow your thinking on this doing the opposite then is in the long run really difficult and 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 painful is i i try to pretend those emotions aren't there or to deny them. And what happens then in the long run? Like when, when someone's gotten in the habit of doing that over you know, months and years of just like, I don't want to have this emotion, or I'm not going to deal with that emotion. How, how does that show up? You can't actually will your feelings away. They're still there. So the more you push them down, the stronger they get because feelings need air. One way, if you want to feel less anxiety or you know whatever it is that you're feeling that that is causing you pain give it some air you know some people say oh i'm feeling anxious i'm going to ignore that and i say make friends with your anxiety say hi say hi to it i know that sounds really woo woo you know but it's actually really effective because if you feel like you're in this battle against that feeling you know you will be in a battle against it if you can say you know that's one part of my experience right now is that i'm feeling anxious about this and i'm going to use that information to say what do i need to do to feel less anxious about this i'm going to welcome that feeling because it's giving me information and i i i'm really fascinated by the the saying hi to the emotion and what you just said yeah because For so often we feel like i just want to get rid of it and i'm saying yeah, yeah. welcome it in it's it's one piece of your experience at that moment it's yeah. not the entire experience for the person who's listening and this is you know me talking to myself too <laughs> Of, for that tendency we have of to feel the envy, to feel the anxiety, and our our default setting for whatever reason is to kind of like stuff that away. What's the first step to just say hi? Well, I think the first step is to notice what you do to get rid of the feeling. So it uh, might be generally the painful feelings that are not acknowledged 
tend to come out in destructive behaviors. They tend to come out in things like, you know, whether it's like food or alcohol or the internet, a colleague of mine called the internet, the most effective short-term non-prescription painkiller out there. Mm, Wow. I love that description because we could just, you know, numb out our feelings by, you know, with our phones, by being, you know, just going down the internet rabbit hole. You know, I do that in the book where I Google my therapist and I spend several hours doing that because I don't want to feel my anxiety <laughs> and it's not helpful. You know, it, it just simply, it's a drug. And so I think the first thing is to notice what am I doing with that feeling? What am I doing to get rid of that feeling? And if you can sit for even a few minutes, which sounds like not a long time, but it actually is a long time. If you can say, I'm going to sit for five minutes, which if you actually try this will feel like an eternity. I'm going to sit with the anxiety there and I'm not going to do something to distract myself from it, but I'm going to breathe through it. And maybe I'm going to go take a walk or maybe I'm just going to walk outside and, you know, look at some trees or see some green or or get some fresh air. Or maybe I'm just going to sit and close my eyes and breathe. It will diffuse the feeling, but also not get rid of it in the way of stuffing it down, but kind of integrating it into your experience and saying, okay, so I wonder what this anxiety is about and getting really curious about it. Saying, hmm, why am I feeling anxious? Okay, I'm feeling anxious. And maybe the first thing that you say isn't all of it. It's maybe, I would go down to like the third level. You know, here's my first guess about what this anxiety is about. And usually that's pretty apparent. And then what might be under that? And then what might be under like that? And then what is it telling me about what I want or what's not working in my life or what can work better. And that's a really productive place to be. Mm. And then a conversation after you've started with yourself that a therapist can really help with too. Yeah. You, you said this a bit ago and you alluded to this, that the success of a relationship with a therapist, that really the number one indicator isn't so much the therapist training or the certifications. Of course, all those are important, but it's the relationship that a person has with their therapist. Tell me more yeah. about that. Study after study shows that the greatest factor in the success of someone's therapy isn't the person's training or you know, like how they were trained or isn't the modality they use necessarily or it isn't even their years of experience. It's about the relationship you have with the therapist, meaning how do you how do you click in the therapy room? you know, what kind of work are you doing with the relationship in the room? So what you do with your therapist is a microcosm of what you do out in the world. So if you're very avoidant out in the world, you'll be very avoidant with your therapist. And if your therapist calls you on that in a way that can help you see that, you're going to be able to change that out in the world. If you're highly defended, your therapist is going to help you see that. If you're a person like John in the book who thinks he's always right, you know, and he does that with me too in the book, you know, when I can point that out to him in a way that he can see that he starts to change out in the world. So that relationship is really crucial to having a a place to almost practice what you need to do out in the world. And if that relationship isn't working, you're not going to feel comfortable enough to practice it in that room. I suppose the obvious next question that a lot of people would ask is, well, how do I find that person? Right. But I am even more curious about a different question, which is, how do I show up in the therapy room to start to build that kind of a relationship with a therapist who has all the right training and has had the experience? 
I think that a first session is really important because sometimes people think that if they make an appointment for therapy, that that's going to be their therapist and that they're going to stay in that relationship. And I think that you need to go to a first session and treat it like a consultation, which is how I treat my first sessions with people, because I don't want to see someone that I don't think I can help. So, and I hope that they're treating it that way too. And I explain that to them coming in, that this is a consultation for us to get a chance to sit in a room together and see what it's like and see if it's a good match. And if you leave that first session and you feel like you were understood and you feel like you were comfortable talking to this person, I would go back for a second session, but it doesn't mean again, that you're signed up for therapy with that person. You just kind of keep going back and see how it's going. And after, you know, a good number of sessions, you'll have a a pretty good sense of that. And if it's not working, that that's something that you can bring up and say, you know, here's my experience so far. And your therapist welcomes that. So many people are afraid to say what their experience is because they feel like they'll offend the therapist, but that's what you're there to do. You're there to really show up and really be present. And if it's not the right match, we want to help you get to the right person. And if it's something that you're doing that's happening in the context of, you know, it happens in other areas of your life, we want to help you through that in the context of our relationship. So either way, it's a good idea to bring it up. As I was reading your book, I was trying to think of what's the word I would use to capture what you've written. And the word that keeps coming up for me is beautiful. And I say that because you've done something, which is a real gift to all of us, of really bringing us into a space that I think is pretty mysterious to most of us of what therapy should look like, what to watch out for, and how to make it work for you. And you mentioned this earlier. I mean, I love that you also bring in your own experience in therapy in this book too. And and there's the tendency for us to think of therapists as not necessarily having the human experience as well. But I love that you have brought that in. And I just think it's so it's so useful for for all of us who want to not only do a better job ourselves, but to support others who are thinking about this. So thank you. Well, thank you for saying that. I wanted to use these stories because I think it's so much easier for us to see ourselves through other people's stories. You know, I think that sometimes people, if you say to someone, here's something that you do that might be getting in your way, people tend to say, oh, no, 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 I don't do that. That's not me. (laughs) Right. But if you see, if you're reading the stories of these people, so many people have said to me since reading the book, oh, I saw myself in that person. I saw that I do this. And and people have maybe mentioned that to me, or I kind of knew I did that. But I was able to see it in a different way when I saw someone else doing the exact same thing. It A, it normalized that I do that because now I know other people do that too. And also it helped me to see how somebody else changed because it gave them a template to see how they might change. So I think stories are so important. And and that's why when the book is titled, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, I don't necessarily mean maybe you should talk to a therapist. I mean, we need to talk to each other more. We need to have these conversations because we're all so similar, but sometimes we don't realize that because we feel very isolated in what we're going through. And yet we all have so much overlap in terms of the kinds of things we struggle with or think about or want to change. And you know, I think the more we talk to each other, the more we can help each other. Lori Gottlieb is the New York Times bestselling author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. Lori, thank you so much for your work. Thanks so much for the conversation. I really enjoyed it.
If this conversation was helpful to you, I'd recommend three additional episodes that will complement it very well. One of them is episode 232, How to Manage Your Inner Critic with Tara Moore. When Tara was on the show, we talked about that inner critic voice that so many of us hear regularly. And as Lori and I talked about in this conversation, we tend to talk to ourselves in ways we would never talk to others. And yet we don't, most of us have a better framework for how to handle that inner voice. In episode 232, Tara and I walked through a process in detail of how to handle that in a healthier way, how to notice that conversation, what to even call the inner critic. So many people have reached out to me over the years and have mentioned how helpful that conversation was to them. Episode 232 is a great place to go for that. I'd also recommend episode 297, Four Steps to Get Unstuck and Embrace Change with Susan David. Susan and I had a wonderful conversation on that episode about emotions as well, as we did in this episode. And she made the point, emotions are data, not directions. So often we feel something in the moment. We feel the anger. We feel the loneliness. We feel insert emotion here that isn't helpful. And we feel like we need to move on it immediately. And of course, that happens with positive emotions as well, too. And as we talked about in this conversation, uh, being present to emotions, noticing them, understanding the patterns as we talked about the the weather of emotions that happen in all of our lives and are so important as the hum- as to the human experience and then what to do with them in a useful and healthy way and in episode 297 Susan and I talked about some uh, some really great ways to approach that so I'd recommend that as well and then finally to Lori's point of having good conversations and how important that is for our emotional health, I'd recommend episode 344, The Way to Have Conversations That Matter with Celeste Headley. She is from NPR, has a very popular TED Talk on the topic of having better conversations, and a wonderful book called We Need to Talk. We talked in detail in that episode on what are some of the key frameworks for having healthy conversations and engaging in what matters most. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. And if you activate your free membership, you'll be able to search all of the past episodes by topic. One of the topics that we have this episode filed under is stress management. Another one is conversations. You'll find those topic areas in detail inside the library. So many other episodes are there as well to support your development. Just register for your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. And when you do, it's going to open up access to the entire library, searchable by topic. It'll also give you access to my weekly leadership guide coming on Wednesdays with more resources and links and articles and other podcasts that I found that'll be helpful to you in supporting what you're learning here on the show plus access to my book notes, my own personal library, and so much more. One of the resources I hear from folks that's really helpful is that personal library. It says Dave's Library inside the membership panel. And if you go there, you can search by topic with everything I found in the weekly guides over the years. And there are other resources that'll help support you. It's a great resource for you and the people you serve. Next week, we're back for our monthly Q&A show coachingforleaders.com slash feedback is where to go with questions to be considered for that. Have a fabulous Monday and see you next week. Take care.